You are listening to the Gable Media Continuing Education Podcast Feed, the most entertaining and convenient way for AEC professionals to get continuing education credits, including AIA-approved courses. As a Gable member, just listen and follow the link in the show notes to take a brief quiz and obtain your credit today. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Happy New Year and welcome back for season two of Unstruct. In this first episode of season two, we will be sitting down with Paul Fast, who is the founder of Fast and Ep, headquartered out of Vancouver, British Columbia, with offices all around the world. Paul sits on several advisory boards for universities and also for the Structural Engineers Association of British Columbia. He is a 2021 gold medal recipient from the Institution of Structural Engineers for his contribution to the structural engineering profession. And he also won the 2022 Education Award for Mass Timber Class at the University of Illinois Urbana. So in this episode, we are actually going to talk about the Richmond Olympic Oval. So Richmond is essentially a suburb of Vancouver, British Columbia, and this structure was constructed for the 2010 Olympics, and it actually housed the speed skating activities. So it's a 506,000 square foot structure. The main structure is arches that span over kind of the main oval, the main speed skating area. These arches are composed of glue lambs and also structural steel. So it was actually this hybrid system to kind of create the look that they wanted, where these arches have a steel backbone to it with glue lamps that kind of infill and it actually creates this void space in the arch that allows for the mechanical ductwork and plumbing and everything else to run through these void spaces in the arches which actually creates a very clean profile. So when you're in the structure looking up, you don't see these obstructions of, you know, mechanical ductwork. It's just a very clean system. So we have these main arch systems that actually have won several awards in both the steel industry and in the timber industry. So just a great example, I guess, of material fusion and using multiple materials to work together and using the best qualities of each of the materials. So super fascinating. We will get into talking about this more. Then in between these arches, they actually created these panels that actually look like waves. So it's kind of a running wave look made out of two by four pine beetle kill material. So this is material that was in trees that suffered damage from the pine beetle, essentially died, and that material then was recycled or used to create these wave panels that kind of form the whole roof structure of this building. So with that, I will stop with my introduction here, and I will hand it over to Paul and let him kind of describe this in a little more detail. I think you're really going to enjoy this. It is a very unique structure. It's something that the way that it started from concept to what got built, they're actually very similar. So I found that very fascinating. 
There were two other things that I wanted to share about Fasten Up that I found very interesting. So one, they have an embodied carbon tool where they are actually able to run their projects through this tool through this program to quantify the carbon output of the project. So I thought that was super fascinating and a great way to kind of keep tabs on what we are outputting from a structural design perspective so that we can, you know, keep getting better and keep kind of working towards that carbon neutral output. The other super fascinating thing is in the base level of their office building in Vancouver, Fast Enough has a concept lab. So when they come up with these super innovative new ideas, they are able to actually take them down into their lab and kind of build a scale model and test these things out to see how they will actually work in the real world. So I think, you know, this really allows them to push the envelope as far as innovation, as far as design, as far as new concepts, because they're able to actually take those more theoretical things and implement them in reality in the concept lab. So I found that super fascinating, such a great benefit to kind of advance the profession. So now I will hand it over to Paul. Please enjoy. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Carrie. Yeah, and maybe if you want to just start off talking a little bit about the project and kind of what the structure is and kind of a little bit of background, I guess, on the building. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. It was a real adventure, this one actually was intended to be, and it was in the end, the uh, signature structure of the 2010 Winter Olympics that took place here in uh, Vancouver and Whistler and Richmond, the suburb of Vancouver. And right from the get-go, when we heard about the project, we wanted to be part of it. I don't know if there's ever a project that I want to be more involved in than this particular one. And we knew it was coming down the pike. We positioned ourselves well. In fact, I went and visited a number of speed skating oils before the uh, RFP for the architectural design teams even came out. We visited Lily, I visited Lilyhammer and also Heronvane and the Netherlands and Salt Lake City Oval, just to get some exposure to what speed scale design was all about with respect to the structure. And then we went to the architects here locally and we said, "Hey, we've seen some ovals. We know what it's about now." <laughs> and uh, you know, we care us in your teams. And in the end, shortlisted five teams, international teams as well. And we were on three of the five shortlisted teams that were invited for an interview. And then in the end, the successful architectural team was Canada Design, primarily of the USA, but they also had an office up here in Vancouver. And that was a winning team. And we were on the team and we were totally thrilled, but also, you know, trembling a little bit in our boots, given that we got word that we uh, were on a successful team. Trembling because uh, we'd never done a 300 foot plus span timber structure before. And there was a desire to use timber here. And that's why we we're brought onto some of these teams. So yeah, that's the background. It became a the thrill of a lifetime, a real adventure. And we can get a little bit more into some of the details of the structure too, as we move through this podcast, but it was an exciting one. Oh my gosh. So so many questions as you're talking. So one of the things that comes up is, okay, so you were on three of the five teams, which puts you in a pretty good statistical position, I feel like, but you never really know for sure. But how far did you have to take the project? Like, you know, obviously there was some sort of concept as to what this was supposed to look like. How far did you have to take it into design before they selected a winner? We didn't put forth any design. The only question that came up during the interview 
particularly the one interview with that successful team, Can Design, was when the general manager walked in for of the city of Richmond walked in for a portion of the interview only, and he asked one question: "Can we build this with wood?" And of course, you know, there's only one answer, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that was yes, we can. <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, I was shaking it with my boots when I said that, but everything's doable, right? For a price, I guess. But that was the only design question I was asked. And up to then, there was no concept. And once we were awarded the commission, then it was a very interesting design process because Canada Design pulled in five or six of their top design architects from their various USA offices, brought them up here to Richmond. And there was a design charrette, a two-day design charrette. And each team led by one of these design architects, there was five, six teams altogether, that were also also comprised of some local um, city officials. I was the structure engineer that was involved. I would just float between the different teams that they came with different designs. There was also some community involvement in those designs. And so they just formed five, six different teams. And the goal was at the end of charrette that each team would have a model and a concept, and that would be presented to the whole group. And then the architectural team would walk away with that afterwards and decide, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to go with? So that was how the design charrette was staged. And in the end, there was no clear winner, actually. It was quite a quite an interesting process. I remember one of the teams, they came up with this maple leaf design concept for this roof and they could hardly even build the model and i thought well if you can hardly even build the model how are you ever going to get this thing built in real life you know <laughs> but you know these are like blue sky meetings right and you know you just you just dream right but in the mm-hmm. end when you all go away you have to land the plane on it but in the meantime what we've done internally here is we developed a design concept that was responding to the visits that i had taken to Lillehammer and heron in the netherlands and also salt lake city and we just decided uh, that the two main lessons that we learned from that was uh, if we can prefabricate the roof or a good portion of the roof, that would be really, really helpful. And secondly, we had to get rid of the mechanical ducting that can just like be a real blemish on good exposed architectural structural design. If you have these pipes hanging all over the place, these big ducts, it can really you know, undermine good architectural expression. So those are the two main design guidelines that we want to stick to. And so we developed a structure that consisted of hollow arches, timber steel arches, or basically hybrid arches, like V-shaped arches, that would span 300 feet across the main space. And in between, we came up with a concept that would have these prefabricated wood wave panels that would span from arch to arch. They would also conceal the sprinkler lines and the electrical conduit. So everything would be concealed. The, The sprinkler lines, the sprinkler mains, the ducts, electrical conduits, you wouldn't see anything up there by virtue of the hollow arches, and the end what also became wood wave panels. And so we presented actually these arches, an image of these arches, these prefab panels in that design charrette. It got sort of stuck on one of the boards that one of the teams that was sort of going with some type of truss design. And it wasn't the center of attention, but it was there as sort of a seed of a thought, yeah, that could be done. And the other thing that was interesting was they also asked me to present in that whole uh, design charrette. Right at the outset, everybody could present their ideas, their thoughts, you know, about where this might go. And I suggested at that point, well, we've got this pine beetle epidemic going on right now in the forests of British Columbia, where the pine forests are being invaded by the pine beetle and they're destroying the wood. And you have to harvest that wood within two years of it being attacked by the pine beetle. And so I suggested, why don't we, uh, at least as a gesture, we're not going to solve the whole pine beetle infestation problem, but as a gesture toward, uh, you know, want to use this wood structurally, let's construct a lot of the 
Olympic oval roof with pine beetle infested wood. And I brought in a sample of it. It's often called denim pine because when the beetles infest the wood, they actually um, secrete a certain fluid, which is sort of blue jean, denim blue jean, bluish color and leaves stains behind in the wood. And so I brought in a piece of that wood, this, you know, stained wood or denim pine, as they call it, and said, here, let's consider using this. And that took root too. That got people excited, you know, and it became the roof that features denim pine, you know, in the end. And so, yeah, that was just an <laughs> interesting little story that was associated with that early design charrette. That's so cool. I mean, that's a very sustainable thing. Like this is material that's going to go to waste if it is not used at a specific time. And if it's not harvested, it's also creating like a fire hazard too, right? Because it becomes dead and dry. Yeah. So how cool. So that was a, a really neat aspect of the whole story. And nice to see that take root. But there's many bumps along the way. <laughs> speed bumps. <laughs> not just potholes, but real speed bumps that we had to cross. And perhaps the most significant one was I guess it was Christmas of about 2006, after we proposed this design concept, the arches and then the panels in between. And the owner and the architect came to me. I got a call from the lead architect and she said, uh, the project manager, she said, Paul, um, we've been instructed to tell you to put pencils down on the wood panel approach because we don't know what the acoustic reading of that will be. We don't know what the firing that will be. We don't know who can build it out here. It's so unique. And we don't know if that would meet the schedule requirements, yeah, and the cost requirements. And so just pencils down on that, and you better just carry on with steel beam, steel purlin in between the arch type of a, approach with metal decking on it, or perhaps Gulam purlins with metal deck over top of that. And we told them that's the fallback if we ever had to go that way, you know. So they knew that those things were hanging out there. And they told us, go with one of those two schemes. And we were, of course, devastated. But at that point in time, that sort of wrecked the Christmas 2007. But early in the new year, then I went to my business partner, Gerald Epp, and he ran our structure craft operation, which is a design build high end timber manufacturing operation. And I said, Jerry, can we rescue this thing somehow? Why don't we come up with a fixed proposal, a fixed price proposal for what these panels could look like? We'll go get an acoustic opinion on it. We'll look at the fire issue on that too. We'll look at the schedule, how long it would take to build these things. And we'll give them a, a proposal and see what they say. And I asked permission, you know, are they, is this going to get a serious look? I asked the architect and the owner and they said, okay, fine, get it done real quick. and We'll give it a serious look. So all that happened. And within about three months, four months, along with some government research subsidy that we got for it, it all came together and StructureCraft was awarded the contract to design and build these special panels, which then morphed into what we call the wood wave panels. And that ended up then going on to like, I think, 13 full-scale load tests, all sorts of analytical design where you had to look at the computer model, which couldn't accurately predict how the panel would behave. And we do load tests and we take that data that came out of the load test and some of the stiffness parameters and feed it back in the computer and back and forth. And it took like about 13 load tests before the whole thing was tweaked to the point where we felt comfortable manufacturing them and basically building them. Awesome. We got over that disappointment of Christmas 2007, I think it was. Take manners into your own hands, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They never argued with the arches. Those they liked from the beginning and they're sort of really cool. Like, as I mentioned before, hollow arches in a triangular shape. They have a steel blade in the bottom, glue lamb blades in the side, about five feet high glue lambs. 
and then across the top they're laced together with some steel bracing and there's also some steel shallow steel wide flange beams that are mounted on the top of those arches and the reason those are added is because they actually lift off the north and south end at the north end to create a higher facade and in more viewing area looking to the north side mountains. Mm-hmm. And in the south, we lifted them off so we can tuck the mechanical distribution duct underneath the roof there between the roof skin and the top of the arch. And then that distribution duct feeds the ducts into the, the branch ducts come off that distribution duct into the arches, which you don't see then because they're concealed within the arches. So it was a huge coordination effort, right? Just making all this stuff work. And of course, the arches had to come out and pieces too, like four pieces to the job site. And then you got to splice the ducts, you got to splice the conduits, the sprinkler lines, everything, you know, uh, in space there. And uh, it was a huge effort, but we pulled it off. Yeah. It's kind of deceiving how clean and kind of homogeneous everything looks or how like well it all fits together, I guess, for like all of the pieces that it took to get to that point. (laughs) Yeah. It took a lot of work and some speed bumps along the way. But in the end, the other challenge was um, who was going to build the arches because it's got wood and it's got steel. And we'd done some hybrid wood and steel with one local fabricator before, and they are really keen on doing this project. And I have to appreciate these are 300-foot-long arches, like massive arches, and there's a huge amount of wood in them and some steel. And so at the end of the day, when this went out to bid, out to tender, there's only one fabricator left standing. And they put in the proposal. Okay. And yeah, it was, thankfully, they, they stepped to the plate and, and did it. And I, I like to say that uh, and think that ever since the uh, creation of the world, I don't think there's been a blacksmith shop or a steel fabrication shop that has seen more lumber in their blacksmith or in their steel shop than on this project here. Like these lumber pieces were <laughs> massive, you know. And in fact, they got heat from some of their competitors saying, uh, suggest that they're abetting the timber industry by actually building these things in their steel fabrication shop, yeah? But they did a marvelous job. It was they put them all together and got them on site. And yeah, there was hiccups on the site too, especially when the first arch was erected and they had the on scaffolding towers at the um, quarter points. So they had a half an arch piece in the middle and then two quarter pieces at the end. And when they dropped in that half arch piece between the quarter pieces that were re- resting on the interior scaffolding, it didn't fit. And all the media was there looking, you know, just witnessing this first arch erection. And the politicians were there. And it wasn't fitting in, you know, when they're dropping it down to place. And eventually, the media and the politicians got bored with the whole thing, I guess, and uh, they left. And uh, then they pulled the double length piece, this 50 meter long piece out again, brought it down to the ground and figured out what was going on. But what was going on was one of the scaffold towers was set at the wrong elevation. So it wasn't fitting. Oh. <laughs> so anyways, the media never heard about that. Now the media will know what. <laughs> secrets out. Twelve years later. Yeah, secrets out. Yeah, but yeah, that was pretty crazy, you know, and stressful again. But yeah, those things happen. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I guess that was maybe one of the best case scenarios if it wasn't fitting, right? Like you can adjust the scaffolding at least. It's not exactly. like one of the foundation elements is off or something. Yeah. And then it also, like, as Murphy's Law would have it, we missed the summer season for panel erection and arch erection, the dry season. And so we were in the middle of winter. We were getting a lot of rain up here. And, boy, we had some gushers. And then sleeping at night and thinking this whole structure is getting soaked, you know. It was not very nice. And then what happened was the arches being hollow, 
they were filling up at the ends of the arch. We, all the water was draining off the panels into the arches, which was in, the intention, and into the steel blade. And then it runs down the steel blade to the very end of the arch. And we had a drain hole down there. Well, that drain hole got plugged with debris. And so the water backed up like a bathtub, you know, five feet high of water in the end of these arches. Oh, no. And you could see it squirting between these end steel plate at the end of the arch and, and the wood, you know, framing into it. It was just squirting out there. And I was reading the riot act, the contract, and get a pump into every one of those. As soon as there's water in there, it's going to kick in the pumps and start draining the water out of there. And of course, getting a contractor to put pumps in every arch end was like pulling hen's teeth as well. At the end, we told them there's probably going to be some more checking in there in the wood than they might have expected otherwise. But all's well that ends well. Yeah. And there was checking in there. There's very interesting. There is checking at the end. <laughs> we had uh, foreseen that this could happen. So we actually drilled some epoxy, drilled an epoxy, some reinforcing bars into the glue lamps at the very end. So that if there was checking happening there, it would distribute the checks, you know, and, and it would just be very minor checks and more distributed. Can you explain what checking is? Checking is like a light cracking when wood shrinks, you know? Okay. But we like to call it a crack because that sounds too harmful, right? Yes. Too dramatic. <laughs> yeah. Too dramatic. Exactly. <laughs> it's actually, you know, wood checks when it dries out. It just has some local cracking sometimes. And it, it doesn't normally go right through the whole wood piece. It just goes at the surface where it's drying out quickly. And then migrates into the wood a little ways, but it rarely ever goes through the entire piece of wood. And so a glue lamp by nature, the joints are horizontal, right? Yeah. So Yeah. But the checking will normally happen not at the glue joint, but in the wood itself. Okay. Just very random. It's just very random uh, where, where it happens. So you get that in every wood structure. Okay. So you had envisioned that this might happen. So your solution was? We, we epoxied these uh, reinforcing bars into the wood. Like, so these wood pieces are five feet high. So from... Both edges, we actually drilled about two and a half foot long holes and just put these reinforcing bars in there, in those holes, and glued them in there so that when it wants to spread, when, when the cracks want to develop, there's still some sheer strength by virtue of the reinforcing bars that are going through there that are strengthening that section. And they also control, I think, the checking so that it'll distribute more uh, throughout the member as opposed to one big check, you know, where you get some half inch crack. Because we figured you make it about up to half inch of shrinkage in the whole beam. And if the beam was also restrained by a plate at the end, so the wood beam was bearing on a steel end plate and the high friction there prevents the wood from shrinking. So you'll also get some a distribution of cracking due to that. It's actually restrained and it'll, it'll force some cracking in there. Okay. You can't avoid it. But just as an extra measure, we put some bars in there too, right near the end of the Lulan beam that just sort of distributed those cracks and gave it some sheer strength where those cracks occurred. And true to form or true to prediction, we went in about two years later and measured the depth of the Gulam beam right at the end of the arch. And then we also measured it about 30 feet in. And 30 feet in, it had shrunk about, like, I think it was about five-eighths inch. And right at the end, it didn't shrink at all. But there was checking in the end region, you know, okay, where, where it relieves itself of those shrinkage stresses. So it was very interesting to observe how that happened. And so we're glad we had those bars in there and it's all good. So, yeah. So what's the spacing on the arches? Like what's the on-center spacing for the arches? I think it was about 45 feet. Okay. 45 feet, yeah. So the panels then, the pine beetle panels are 45 feet long by what's the width of them? 12 feet wide. 12 feet wide, yeah. Okay. Yeah, a little bit shorter than 45 feet because they rest on the uh, splayed arches. So they're about 42 feet long. Gotcha. But the center to center, I think it was about 45 feet on the arches. Can you explain what these wave panels, the pine beetle wave panels, kind of how they're constructed or what that material looks like in there to create kind of that wave look? Yeah. So they're built up of two by fours. 
And if you look at the cross section, the two by fours are aligned in such a way that it's sort of like the, the V shapes that go up and down like a wave, you know, mm-hmm. and there's individual two by fours. Of course, you can't get 45 or two by four. So you have to, you know, connect them and overlap two by fours. So they're connected, screwed together and overlapped. And there's also gaps between the two by fours. So it's not just a solid uh, surface in the bottom. There's gaps between the two by fours. And they were assembled first in a straight configuration. And then a hydraulic press jacked them up and created the, uh, the, the curve form. Okay. And then there's a tension tie, a, a dewey dag rod that uh, is about 42 feet long. And it holds the ends in so that the uh, arch doesn't flatten out again. And the whole thing is topped by plywood. Okay. By layer of plywood. And then inside there, there's acoustic liner inside there and also insulation, uh, fire insulation. And there was also some, uh, you know, L-shaped steel connectors that were um, connecting some of the two by fours together, particularly the end region where the shear forces, the compression force are very high. Okay. It's quite a complicated design, but it basically is consisting of two by fours that are ultimately bent by this hydraulic press or hydraulic jack that creates a curved form. And they're all connected with screws and with L-shaped plates and Simpson angles that we call them, A35 Simpson clips. And they're all connected like that. And then there's plywood on top and that creates that form. Yeah. Okay. And it's very, very strong, very rigid, and very strong, actually. And it's hollow, so you can run your sprinkler lines inside there and conceal those. Okay. And uh, the, the beauty of it is this. It's not only a, a, a strong structural form, like an arch with a tie in the bottom. It's not only prefabricated, so you can easily erect these 12-foot wide panels, of which there was about 450 panels altogether. Very easy to erect. But it also has an interesting aesthetic. And... It conceals the mechanical, the, the sprinkler lines, and by virtue of the fact that it's a waveform, that increases the surface area by about 40, 45%, if it's on a one-to-one slope, right? About 40, 45%, which increases your acoustic absorption area, right? Yeah. So there's acoustic liner behind these panels, and the two by fours have gaps between them, so the acoustic surface area is effectively an increase by 45%. The place functions wonderfully acoustically. So what we like to do here in our office too is we like to look at hybrid approaches and we like to see structure do like double, triple, and quadruple duty. In this case, it's doing quadruple duty, right? It's doing a structural function, it's doing aesthetic function, it's doing mechanical concealment function, and it's doing acoustic function, right? Mm-hmm. That's sustainability in our mind where structure is doing more than just supporting the load, serving these other functions, aesthetic, concealment, and also acoustic. It doesn't always work that way, right? But I think this is, you know, the, the, the most optimal design we ever had in terms of getting all those four design requirements met with the structure, per se. Well, and like what's coming to mind, too, Paul, as you're talking, like, so you're talking about that Christmas that was ruined. And, you know, because there was like the fireproofing that needed, you know, pencils down. We need to do some different kind of panel, right, was kind of the direction at that point because it just hadn't been figured out yet. And acoustically, there was concern and then also fireproofing. And now you're just describing that both of those things were incorporated into these panels. Yeah, it was a brilliant design. And, and my partner, Gerald Epp, he spearheaded that panel redesign, if you like. We had original wood panels too, and we had some cables in the bottom, but then it turned into a hollow panel and it got even better mm-hmm. as it evolved, right? Yeah. But it was not without complexity, but we managed to pull it off. And the final architectural expression, of course, has almost become a bit of a uh, mecca for structure engineers and architects that want to see cool structure, you know? Yeah. Well, okay. So as you're talking, something that I think is very unique and original to Fast and Ep is you guys have the concept lab, right? So like you're able to kind of test out these things 
in real time or before they're actually designed, right? Almost using the the laboratory data. Can you explain that a little bit more of how you do that testing prior to implementation into designs? Yeah. Well, when the Olympic Oval was built, the actual uh, timber structure, not the arches, but the actual panels were uh, manufactured and then erected by a company called Structure Craft Builders, which my partner, Gerald Epp, and I had started in 1997. He was the one that directed that operation and, and led it. And so we had a facility where we could actually test these panels. Now, fast forward to 2022. I mean, 2014, we actually separated the business affairs of those two companies. So Structure Craft Builders is wholly operated and owned now by my former partner, Gerald Epp. And the FastNet Consulting is wholly owned by myself with a couple of junior partners now. So those firms are now separated. But now in 2021, actually, we established our own concept lab, which is uh, consisting of space here in our office building, the ground floor of our office. And we have a full-on uh, testing frame there with 500 kilonewtons, about 100 kip capacity, hydraulic RAM that we can test the um, specimen with. We've got a 3D printer that we can make models with, and we've got a six-axis robotic cutting arm that we can uh, you know, form any wood shape with, basically. And we've got full-on workshop equipment, too. So we have this laboratory. We can now make things and make models. And it's more smaller scale. We're not actually producing or manufacturing for final implementation. We're just researching. What we're doing now is we're taking, uh, we're walking architects through different model studies where we can actually build things. And now we'll just, we just got the RAM installed uh, the, the last couple of months. And so now we're in a position where we can actually test things ahead of time too. So we're just embarking on that adventure now. We built some models already that show, you know, how the structural concept works. And that's very valuable, particularly for one large amphitheater structure, which are just got the go on for the final design and that go ahead for the final design of that. And that's going to be about a 350 foot span. Like it's almost like a tripod type of design where the structure springs off of three points at ground level and comes into a middle area there and covers this whole amphitheater roof. It's really cool. And we did a uh, 3D printed and robotic cutting arm model and showed that to the client, how that all works. And they were really impressed. They gave them a good understanding of how this thing's going to look. So you can draw it visually too nowadays, digitally, right? We also actually did that too. We did a digital model and with Google Glasses, we actually let the client walk through this whole structure and see exactly what it's going to look like. So we're just using those tools to prepare models, but they've also got a program going now where we're going to be testing about 250 pieces of cross-laminated timber, particularly for their punching shear behavior, so we can codify the results and we can take mass timber one step further, particularly with cross-laminated timber in this case here. So we're going to be carrying out that program the next six months to a year or so everything's in place now and we got some research funds to do that. So it's sort of this mix of, uh, you know, model making and, and researchy type of work. And at the same time, you know, perhaps testing some samples too, when we're doubtful about what the actual capacity is before we actually put it in the final design, we can do some testing on it. So it's just all getting launched right now. We did some of that previously through structure craft, like Olympic oval panels with a classic case, but now we have this sort of in-house research arm that, is embarking on a whole new adventure, which uh, we'll see where it goes. It's a real adventure. Well, I see that as allowing you as a designer to take more risks because you can test it then to see, like as engineers, we're always trying to predict how things are going to behave based on material properties and loading conditions. But this allows you to actually see how it's going to react to that. So I see that as an opportunity to take more risks and to create more unique original designs like you've already done. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. 
So you kind of glazed over this, but you said you're codifying results. So I want to just spend a little bit of time on that for the listener, because that is a very complex, laborious process of taking what you have and getting it put together so that the code enforcement agency actually recognizes it. I believe that's what you're saying by codifying, right? Yes, correct. Okay. It'll be another step or two beyond this yet, beyond this immediate testing uh, where, where others would get involved, right? And the code committees get involved. And so it, it's not the final step, but it's a step toward getting something codified and that data can be used. And it can even be used before it gets codified. It's good to have, you know, testing data if you are delving into a new area, which isn't fully known yet. And there may be some code formulas, but for instance, we're involved in the design of the first, the, the tallest mass timber building here in North America. It was at the University of British Columbia campus. It was an 18-story student residence, okay. 17 stories of mass timber. And the breakthrough design on that was we went to point-supported mass timber. So we had cross-lamin timber panels, but instead of resting on beams and posts, we rested on posts only. So cross-lamin timber has the ability to you know, span in two directions because it's got these cross-laminations, right? And so we said, well, why put beams in there then? Let's just dispense of those, and we're just going to put posts up every 10 feet in the demising walls of the uh, suites. And then we're just going to rest these panels, like 10 foot by 13 foot panels right on those posts. It's like point support of concrete, right? Now, exactly how that panel behaves right near the support, the punching shear there, the code formulas in the Canadian code and in the American code are very limited. So we went to the Euro code and looked at that and we felt that was very conservative. So that we actually carried out a testing program on these panels, broke about 13 panels, to see exactly, can we expect a higher capacity at these post locations where the punching shear is quite high? And the conclusion we came to is that, yes, we could get out more of it than the code permits. And so that gave us the freedom to move forward based on the testing results with this point-supported panel design. Okay. That's the type of thing we're doing more research on now to just make sure that we've got enough testing data that it can be embedded in the code and that designers can rely on it. But that helped us actually push the envelope design because we went to the testing procedure, right? So yes, to answer your question, it, it, it's going to give us the opportunity to push the envelope further and sometimes get things codified as well. Yeah. And by codifying, you are being a trailblazer and setting a precedent and a resource, providing a resource for other structural engineers to use as well. Exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> it's public funding. All the results will be known. Don't be anything proprietary about it. Uh, we're there to just further the industry and particularly further the mass timber industry too. I know one other thing that you guys are doing a lot with is kind of embodied carbon. And I think you have a special tool in office that you're using on your design. Is it the embodied carbon tool? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, we, we develop a tool where you can actually measure the embodied carbon that is in the structures that we design. Uh, in fact, right now we're doing a study for our client on what is the world's largest mass timber project. You know, comprising roughly two and a half million square feet of office space, and just also measure the embodied carbon in those buildings. It's just something that increasing is uh, is becoming part of project work, measuring the embodied carbon. And we also have a timber bay tool, which uh, is accessible on our website to any designer, where you can very quickly assess, you know, what framing is the most optimal when you're using mass timber construction. You know, wood columns, wood purlins, wood beams, and mass timber panels. You can also figure out what the embodied carbon is at those concepts, just at a very preliminary level. The carbon calculator takes it to a more detailed level, but it's all just part of moving forward in industry, right? And mm -hmm. obviously a uh, carbon calculation is really important nowadays and 
close to our hearts as well. So we're trying to do more of that. Yeah. And that's, you know, as I interview people, as I talk to people on the podcast, that seems to be the thing that comes up the most. And in my mind, like one of the things that has changed the most or kind of progressed the fastest or the most in our industry is our responsibility and our autonomy as structural engineers to have an impact on the environment, on the carbon output of our designs. You know, it's more of a proactive approach instead of a reactive approach. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. Yeah. No, when it comes to that subject, at the end of the day, a a structure has to withstand a certain amount of design load, right? It's always been our mandate to design as efficiently as possible, right? And to optimize the design. And if the cost goes up, it's often a sign that you haven't got the most optimal design. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if, if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit him with two levers, if you like. <laughs> and that is, the one is the cost lever, right? And just say, hey, you know, this is too costly. This is a really inefficient scheme. The other one is, hey, your carbon is going way too high. <laughs> For instance, like if there's a big cantilever, right? As you know, we love to do ambitious, aggressive cantilevers, right? 30, 40, 50, 80 feet, whatever they might be. But we have to acknowledge in this you know, low carbon era that a post at the end of that cantilever it may not be as dramatic, but you can drop your carbon count a lot. So previously you would have said, hey, well, you know, we can do that, but it's going to be costing this much more. And now we say it's not going to cost this much more, but your carbon is going to go up this much more, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of like a double way we can hit it with <laughs> in the name of efficiency. Engineers have to increasingly step into the conversation, the architectural conversation, and say, look at, you know, yes, this is cool architecture. This is ambitious architecture, but uh, consider what it means in terms of additional carbon. That is becoming a real factor now in design. And it'll be hard for architects to fully accommodate that factor, if you like, because it really can cut into some dramatic design, you know, design drama, yeah, ambitious design. It, it, the free form, uh, some of these free form structures that have been built by the, you know, Gary's and of the world, you know, they're pretty carbon intensive. Where is that design conversation going to go in the future? Do we still live with that or do we have to go more disciplined? At the same time, the other extreme is you don't want to go so disciplined that you get like, you know, the old like, you know, former Soviet bloc, East bloc, like East Berlin. I remember, you know, walking down those roads there and and just, you know, blocks and blocks of, you know, monotonous concrete structural design, right? Just boxes, boxes, you know? Yeah, we have to be willing to pay some money for better architecture and also pay some carbon if you like better architecture, but it'll be interesting to see where that conversation goes. So I think the Richmond Olympic Oval is like a case in point to that because it has this great architecture. It is creative, unique. It is dramatic and architecturally interesting. But you guys also had that eye on the carbon footprint of the building. So like it's a very green approach too. So yeah. I mean, what you have to remember there too, to be uh, fair in the whole conversation, is there are also concrete buttresses that lock in the compression forces from the arch, right? Could also add steel tension ties there, which would have probably dropped the carbon count of the concrete buttresses significantly. But at the same time, it would have really compromised the architectural expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a classic case, right? And the other thing you got to remember is there is an underground basement structure there, a large basement structure that supports the ice slab. And we do the carbon count on the whole building. Yes, you, you've reduced the carbon count in the roof structure, but the, the total carbon count is dominated by the by the parkade structure, yeah? 
Okay. And this is the thing, you know, you can get like a, a you know, five or 10 story wood building, but if you have four or five stories of parking below that of concrete, it just dominates the carbon calculation. And so these are the things you struggle with, you know, you can't put wood down the ground there. Uh, you got to get rid of the parking. And so that's another, you know, compromise that has to be accepted in the future that we're going to have less parking spaces and people are going to have to commute more or take public transit or walk or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. So what do you think is the most fascinating thing about this project? Oh, just when you walked into that building, particularly when it was configured inside just for the uh, speed skating venue, you just had the, the long rink there, the long ice surface there, right? And you just had the structure all uncluttered there in its full glory. You walked in there, you just looked, and it, just, there was just a, it was just a jaw dropper. It was a real jaw dropper. You walked in and said, this is, re-, and it got worldwide press, right? Yeah. It got worldwide press and won a lot of awards and all that. Now it has been chopped up a little bit because you have some, you know, it's now got um, two ice rinks that went in and like eight volleyball basketball courts in the middle and a dry land running track at the other end. And they got these screens that hang down and you know the stuff that hangs from the ceiling. So it, it clutters a little bit more, but it's still beautiful. But that original walk in there and see this thing, it was just like, it was a jaw dropper, you know, you know, without exception. Yeah. What a moment. <laughs> yeah. And then at the closer of it all, uh, I'd say the, uh, the, most interesting quote I heard on it was from the architect when he came up to me once, the chief design architect, and he said, Paul, he says, this is an experiment that went terribly right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, it wasn't a careless experiment where you just, you know, but we, we, we did enough research to make sure it all worked. But it was an experiment, right? And uh, collectively, the owner, the architect, and the structure engineer we hung our heads out the window a long ways. It was managed risk. It was well-managed risk. But, you know, life wasn't comfortable during those few years of design. As comfortable as it could be if you just put some predictable steel trusses up there, right? Right. And I thought that sort of captured the process the best, you know? Yeah. This is an experiment that went terribly right. <laughs> <laughs> so true. And that experiment won awards in the steel realm of things, in the wood realm of things, like... Which, how many projects do that? <laughs> yeah, everywhere. In fact, you know, I've got an assembly of magazines that featured the image of the Oval on the front cover of the magazines. And it ranged from everything from the electrical contractor, I think, to the acoustic magazine, to the architect magazine, to structure magazines, the steel fabrication magazines, the Gulam magazine, everything. It was like 10 or 11 different cover <laughs> photos there, you know? Yeah. The best one, though, was, it wasn't a cover photo. But one that also captured the, the essence of the project best was the steel fabricator, George Thurden's son, with Scottish roots going way back, and the glue lamp manufacturer called Structure Lamp, a local glue lamp manufacturing company. They took out an ad together, a joint advertisement, full-page magazine ad, and they showed an image of the arch, and they said, together, we have created the longest-spanning hybrid arches in the world. And so it was just cool to see how the steel industry and the wood industry combined here to create something beautiful instead of, you know, just being like this at loggerheads, right? And, you know, we want our territory, they want their territory. They got together, got their act together, built it together, and took out an ad that said, look, this is what we can do when we work together. That's awesome. That was the crowning glory of that project uh, in many respects, you know? Yes. Just to see that there was cooperation and it gave rise to excellent result. So cool. Okay, so if you could give this building a theme song, what would the theme song be? Oh, 
call it glorious collaboration. Okay. Okay. Is this a self-titled album? Is this a song? Yeah. That- <laughs> I don't know. Glorious collaboration. It doesn't sound like something that you know people would jump on right away. You know, glorious collaboration, but soaring roof structure, glorious collaboration, and something like that. The actual emblem of the city of Richmond is the heron. The heron. Okay. And the final design took on the shape of a heron too. In fact, the original vision was flight, flow, and fusion. That was what the architect presented in the interview too. Flight, flow, and fusion. Yeah. And it matches that. Yeah, and it matches that, you know? So maybe you call it Flight, Flow, Fusion. Yes, a new song. Not like Beethoven's Fifth or something, but, uh, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Maybe there is a song out there. I'll have to see. Yeah, Symphony of Structure. We wrote a book for our 20th anniversary called Symphony of Structure as well. And this is real uh, symphonic expression, this, this structure. Love it. That's awesome. Okay, Paul, I want to be respectful of your time, but I do want to ask you one more question. What do you do to recharge? Work-wise, you know, you sort of get past one of these and then it's almost like a little bit addictive. You know, you're looking for the next one then right away, right? The next uh, charge, if you like, (laughs) next recharge. But on my private time, I recharge with family. I got a goodly number of kids and grandkids now. And uh, we spend time in the outdoors too and stuff like that. We got a cabin. So, you know, we recharge there with lots of good time there. Love it. That's awesome. Well, this has been awesome. I loved learning more about the Richmond Olympic Oval. It's a beautiful structure. Congratulations on it. And I know it's only one of so many, but thanks for taking time to sit down and talk about it. Yeah, you're welcome, Carrie. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today.